In conclusion, this book, while excellent in its analysis overall, welcomes students to bring together the theories and methods of two different fields of study, social history, detailed enough so that more seasoned researchers will find. I'm Robert Castanello. I'm the vice president of research and publications at HNet, and this is the Art of the Review podcast. I'm Elena Kalinsky, managing editor of HNet Reviews. And this is a podcast where we examine reviewing and criticism as an academic form. This podcast is brought to you by HNET and the University of Central Florida's Center for Humanities and Digital Research. Welcome to the Art of the Review podcast. All right, welcome to this episode of the Art of the Review. And in this episode, we're going to explore the issue of reviewing translations. And Elena and I... We both talked about this topic um, before we thought about who and, and what to include in this topic. And, and we thought it would be interesting to explore the ways in which translations sort of complicate a review. And, Elena, you found one HNET review where I guess the reviewer mentions the w role that the translation of the original source played in, um, in this specific evaluation of the book. Yeah, that's right, Robert. So HNET Reviews doesn't typically evaluate translations of literature, for example, just because um, most of our networks are uh, in history and cultural studies. We don't have that many uh, literature-focused networks. But I think that evaluating an author's translation of source material is still an important part of evaluating historical work. I noticed a recent review published on the H Buddhism Network of Stephen Heine's Zen Cohen's, the review by John Jorgensen, talks about translation directly. He identifies some mistranslations that Stephen Heine made of Zen Cohen's that change the interpretation and potentially change Heine's conclusions. So we'll link to that review so you can take a look on the show notes blog. And you'd mentioned to me when we talked about this topic that translating and translation is a much more complicated art form than just looking for accuracy, right? And I think that's um, Jurgensen's point is that there, there's a lack of accuracy in the, in the translations here. But that's just one sort of small component to evaluating whether a translation is effective or not or, or valuable or not. Um, and you mentioned um, to me something in regards to translation theories. So I'm fascinated with translation and translating. Um, I myself do some translation. I've translated source material um, from my own research. Uh, I'm right now in the middle of translating uh, poetry by some artists that I've been writing about. Um, so I'm, I'm kind of interested in it generally. And I find that when, I, when I've read about translation theory, um, there's been kind of a change over time. So back in the 40s and 50s, maybe, there was more of a an empirical approach to translating, the attempt to create an equivalent sentence or an equivalent word or an equivalent passage to the one in the original source language. And over time, as cultural studies have taken a, a kind of front seat approach in academia, translation theory has followed suit and translators have recognized that culturally situating the source text and then culturally situating the resulting text is very important. So you have to be familiar with how an original text works within the culture and then find a way to 
create a text that works in an analogous, if not equivalent way in the resulting culture. And I think with Heine's review, for example, he's really talking about how Zen Cohen's um, work within monastic culture in various places. And Jorgensen's critique is that if you mistranslate the original Cohen's, you, you're really not thinking about how they work in the place where they work. So, so you have to evaluate the whole source culture. Also, you know, when you think about reviews of translations, there's a kind of commonplace in these types of reviews because you can't really go through an entire English translation of Crime and Punishment and go line by line and say, this works, this doesn't work. But one of the commonplaces that reviewers will come back to is they'll compare the translations of famous opening lines. So, for example, Tolstoy's um, All Happy Families uh, are alike, all unhappy families are unhappy in their own ways. So there have been many, many translations of Russian classics. We'll link to a couple of reviews where the reviewers will compare the first lines. And you can see how even those um, are very culturally specific. So a British translation is going to sound off to an American reader. So you have to take all of these into account. And Robert, you spoke to a colleague of yours about translating, a colleague who is a translator. I spoke with my colleague, Paolo Giordano. He's in the Department of Modern Languages here at the University of Central Florida, and he spoke to me about reviewing translations. And um, I approached him about this because I know he deals um, extensively with translations, specifically Italian translations. And so I just kind of caught him in the elevator one day, and I said, uh, asked him, you know, point blank, I said, do you do reviews of translations that just look at the translations? And he kind of looked at me kind of funny and said, absolutely, that's what we do. And so I said, uh, well, can I talk to you about this? And so you know, I, I ventured into his office with a recorder, and I recorded this interview. Great. Well, let's listen to that. I'm a professor of modern languages at the University of Central Florida. Uh, well, most of my publications are in immigration literature, immigra uh, literature written by Italians in the United States from the 19, from 1900, let's say, to about 1950. I've also published on the Renaissance, but I do teach Dante's Divine Comedy on campus in the Renaissance. So, uh, so what is it that a reviewer would have to do if they're reviewing a recent translation of a book that is... Well, I, you know... Well, the text that we would like that, that's been mostly translated is from Italian literature. I mean, that's what I do, okay? That's what I know. Uh, the Divine Comedy by Dante. There are uh, tons of translations. There's uh, one that where they try to keep the, the rhyme scheme, the terza rima, that creates certain amounts of problems because you've got to find the right words to fit with the text, but also give you a rhyme scheme. They've done it in free verse, etc., etc. There's numerous ones. A new one. Well, number one, you give it to somebody that knows something about translations and who knows the Divine Comedy or whatever text that's been, that's been translated and they reviewed. Uh, make sure that the, that the translation fits the text in, some, in one way or another. Okay? There's a famous translation of the Divine Comedy by a famous poet, John Charty, in the 50s. Well, you read that. It's more like Charity wrote his, wrote his own poem. It's a wonderful translation. You, know, you don't lose from it, but it's, 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 it's in many ways redone, okay? 
there's my bone professor, Mark Musa, who just passed away, did a free verse one, which has been very, very successful. He made hundreds of thousands of dollars on this translation, and, and others, and others. Uh, so that's the first part, to make sure that the translated text fits the, uh, the, uh, the original. And I would think today the, the one thing that changes... Uh, where you really update these translations is in the footnotes, is in the notes, is in the explanatory notes. The Divine Comedy is a really difficult text. Uh, one of the one of the tra- one of the exercises we did when we did the Inferno in grad school, he had us translate it. It's Man Mark Musa, and you get to a certain word where there are four or five, maybe four or five is too many, but at least three or four. English words that you could use, you got to pick the right one. you got to pick the one that's got the gravity that Dante meant. Okay? That's the gravitas. And so, then some ways is pretty much it. But I mean, so, you've got to be very, very, very good in both languages. You've got to know them well. Not necessarily speak them, but at least know, you know, no syntax, no grammar, and so on and so forth. So could you go back to an earlier point you made? So is there or can there be a debate that emerges based on one translating faithfully a word versus one taking liberties with Sure. I mean, this goes back to the 50s, to actually 40s. In Italian, uh, when the, when during the fascist period, American literature was very big in Italy because it represented a certain fa- kind of freedom, you know, et cetera, et cetera. There was one one writer who translated lots of texts, but he, has, he, he didn't know English. He had someone, trans, yeah, yeah, he hired a person to translate these novels word by word by word, which didn't make much sense. And then he rewrote them, and they called those translations. You see, so sometimes it was a little, it didn't come quite, uh, it, it didn't quite follow the text. And so so that, that was one approach. Obviously, I, I don't think you don't use that today. But uh, I mean, because today translation is very, very important. Uh, we value it very much because you know, it, it makes texts available in other languages to people that are not that do not know that language. So it's just really kind of a, a, a practical thing, like how useful is the translation? Right. In some ways, in some ways, it is. Yeah. I mean, uh, I, we use them in classes. I use I use. Uh, I use uh, a three-volume one by a man named Robert Durling. And uh, why do I use this? Number one, because it's face-to-face Italian and English. And at the end of each canto, there are copious notes. And at the end, there are articles on certain cantos to better explain. But that's more sort of a teaching tool. That's for a teaching tool. If you don't know the... If you don't know the, the uh, I mean, you can do you can do scholarship. Don't get me wrong; you can do scholarship, but you do have to know the text in the Italian. I mean, in in the in the original language. Old time comparative li- comp literature professors. I mean, they 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 were able to read four or five different languages for the most part. So so okay. imagine imagine you get um, you you understand there's a book that has been translated and it's a classic work like we're talking about here, and you receive the review and you're ready to read it, what do you expect, what kind of information do you expect to get out of that review? What pleases you to learn? The style. Is he faithful to the, is that person faithful to the text? 
do you sometimes you're able to find different things, different nuances in, in the text that were not brought out before to the previous translations? I'm not sure that happens much anymore on certain texts. And uh, what kind of notes is how, how, how useful is it as far as its notes? Is this, you know the apparatus of notes uh, and things along those lines? Now I'm working on something right now. Uh, where is it? Do I have it here? Uh, it's Professor Joseph Tuziani. Uh, he's the first one to translate the poems of Michelangelo. Brought to an American public, the idea that Michelangelo was not only a sculptor and a painter, he was always probably the best lyric poet in the, in the Italian Renaissance in the 16th century. Not epic poet, but, you know, short poetry. Today we value translation, uh, you know, uh, my, I think much, probably much, much more than in the past. Is, that's a very valuable tool. It's a very, very valuable tool. Come find us on the show notes blog at H Podcast, where we'll post links to the H Buddhism review mentioned in this episode, as well as other examples of reviewing translations. You can also share your reflections on this topic with us at the show notes blog.